So as we continue in Isaiah, we're going to be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not have sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you again for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we pray that at this time you would give us wisdom and discernment through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to know what is true. For to know the truth is to know your Son, Jesus Christ. And to know your Son, Jesus Christ, is to be set free and made alive. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. We're already starting to see a pattern developing here in Isaiah. In Isaiah, you're starting to see already as we went through chapter 1, and now we're going into chapter 2. We're seeing this pattern where God is making clear his holy, just indignation and wrath toward the disobedience of his people. And it is strong, and it is hot, and it is powerful. And after, you'll see this clear indication of God's powerful, just wrath against the sins of his people. Then he speaks the most gracious, merciful, amazing words that you'll find in the scriptures. You're already starting to see this pattern develop. As we looked at the end of Isaiah 1, we saw one of his strongest indictments toward the wickedness of his people and the consequences of that wickedness. And now we're getting into one of the most beautiful promises of his grace and mercy in the book of Isaiah. So again, if you go back to Isaiah 1, you see where in verse 27, there you again saw this this statement of grace and mercy Isaiah 1, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice. 
her penitent ones with righteousness. So remember, throughout Isaiah 1, it was showing how how wicked the people had become, how they had turned away from the things of God, and God is bringing his judgment. But here is this promise of redemption. That Jerusalem will again, and this is the verse right up above it at the end of verse 26, it says, and afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And as we've already been going through Isaiah 1, how can that be? God has made clear how wicked, how disobedient, how sinful his people are, and then he'll make a statement like that. But you will be a righteous city. You will be a faithful people. I will redeem the repentant. I will save a remnant. This goes back to verse 18. If you go back to verse 18 of chapter 1, you see where God gives this promise again. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Again, one of the most amazing, amazing statements in Scripture because it's making clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God isn't making a differentiation here between those who have not sinned and they will be his people and those who have sinned and they will not He's saying, you've all sinned. Your sins are like scarlet. Earlier in the passage, it talked about the sins of the people like blood on their hands. The blood of corruption and idolatry and wickedness that stood out as they lifted their hands in hypocrisy and going through the motions of the sacrificial system, though their hearts were far from God. They lifted their hands to God, and God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers because your hands are full of blood. That's where it's saying here, your your sins are like scarlet, but they'll be as white as snow. And here you're starting to develop in Isaiah, you're starting to ask, how? How can we be redeemed? How can we go from wickedness to righteousness? How can we go from being lost to being saved? And again, how can Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people, how can it be restored or lifted up? And the answer to these hows, what Isaiah is driving you to is, it's only by God's grace and God's power. Remember, that's the main theme we're already seeing developed in Isaiah chapter 1 and into chapter 2, that only God can save you. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. No one else can save you. There's no religion. There's no philosophy. There's no system. There's no power and strength or ability in any of us that can save ourselves. 
only God can save us, and we can only be saved by God's grace. Remember, that's this theme developed through here. It's grace alone, through faith alone. All our works are but filthy rags. That's what Isaiah is developing here. We can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. So as we see that foundation being built in Isaiah chapter 1, now we get into Isaiah chapter 2. And this beginning statement, again, here is this amazing statement. Because God has, throughout most of chapter 1, been bringing judgment against his people. Because his people have fallen into immorality. They've fallen into hypocrisy. They've fallen into idolatry. They've fallen into corruption. That they are so consumed by their fallen flesh that they have forsaken the word of God and the things of God. That's why when you see this statement of verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2, again, you stop and say, how can this be? Oh, that's right. Only God can save. Only God can do this. That's, where, that's what Isaiah chapter 1 and 2 is driving us into. So we see the power of this prophecy. Here in chapter 2, it says this in verse 2. And in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and... Here's the promise. All nations will stream to it. All nations. Here we see it's made clear that God will one day fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. Remember God told Abraham that you will be a blessing to every nation. Remember that was the purpose of God taking Abraham and Sarah and creating a people through them, a nation through them, is that one nation would be a light, that it would be a beacon, that it would be a blessing to every nation. But the problem is, due to God's people's rebellion and disobedience, rather than being a beacon of truth and the light of God's love and justice, you see in this time of Isaiah that God's people had fallen into the deepest darkness of rebellion themselves. And they could no longer do the purpose that they were created for. The Apostle Paul talks about this. It's Romans 2. So if you go to Romans 2, you see a a passage here that helps us understand how amazing Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5 are. Here you see God is literally saying, I am going to completely reverse what you have done in your rebellion. This is what he's saying to his people. Through your rebellion... You have brought darkness and destruction, but I'm going to bring light and life. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 
captures so well the, the heart of rebellion of the people of God, not only during his time, but also during the time here of Isaiah's prophecy. So if you look at Romans 2, starting at verse 17, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, this is a powerful statement. Because here's Paul's, Paul is, is giving this warning and, he, and he's, he's giving this indictment against the Jews of his time who continued in, in a pride or an entitlement and a disregard for the truth of salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. So you see this indictment that they thought that they, because they had God's law, because they had the oracles of God, because they had the sacrifices and, and all these teachings, that it put them on a higher, more superior, more privileged place before God. But the problem is the Apostle Paul is saying here, though you should have been guides and lights and instructors and teachers, you weren't. You've fallen short. You're and here we see the Apostle Paul speaking these three categories of sin that we've already seen in Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to see developed throughout the book of Isaiah. These are three of the main ways the people of God had rebelled during the time of Isaiah. Number one is the stealing, the corruption. Remember we've seen in Isaiah 1 how the people of God were, were taking advantage of the most weak and vulnerable in society rather than supporting and encouraging. In verse 22, the committing adultery, we see where the the rampant immorality and disregard for God's holiness and how we are to conduct ourselves as God's people. And then the idolatry. Those are those three categories we've already seen in Isaiah 1. So verse 23, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written. And here we see where the Apostle Paul is, he's paraphrasing a quote from Isaiah 52. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now that's one of the strongest indictments we can find in the Scripture. Because the whole purpose 
of the people of God was to be a blessing to every nation, was to display the truth and love and power of God, was, was to lift up God's name, but because of their rebellion and their hardness of heart and their disregard for God's law and God's word, rather than lifting up God's name through their words and actions, they took God's name and glory and threw it in the gutter. So much so that the Gentile nations around mocked the people of God and blasphemed God's name at looking at their actions and their conduct. So it is this context, it is this rampant rebellion that you have God speaking the promise of Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. That's how far the people of God were from being a light and a beacon. And that's how glorious God is going to display his salvation. His salvation. It's a miraculous thing when anyone is saved. When a person is saved, they literally are taken from being dead in their sins to being made alive in Jesus Christ. That's how miraculous our salvation is. Well, again, we see where God is going to do this amazing, miraculous work of taking a dead people, a disobedient, dead nation, and making them alive through the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords, the promised one who will come, who will be the true Israel. And that is Jesus Christ. So that's what we see woven through these verses. So if you see here this promise, even though these people of God of the time of Isaiah in Judea and Jerusalem had so transgressed God's law, God says that he is going to raise up the mountain He's going to raise up the house of the Lord. He's going to lift up his name so that not just the remnant of Israel who will believe and trust, but the true believers of every tribe, nation, language, every family of the earth, that they too will come to this mountain, that they too will come and bow down before this Lord that they will worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's an amazing thing. Here you see it's emphasized there is only one Lord. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one way of salvation. It is through faith and belief in Him. The way is the cross. The way is the empty tomb. The way is His return. It is in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and Lord of Lords. That's why we see in these verses here, in verse 2, all nations will flow to it. Many people will come. You see this also where Jeremiah prophesied about this. The same statement we see this promise in Jeremiah. So if you look at Jeremiah 3, starting at verse 17, you see where Jeremiah gave the same prophecy. 
Jeremiah chapter 3, starting at verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. That's it. That's the key. Something will happen that they will no longer stubbornly follow their own evil heart. What is it that will happen? God will give them a new heart. He will make them alive. He will draw them to himself They will come with a new heart and a new mind to love him and seek him. And that's the cry of the people, these people from every nation who will flow to it. And and that's verse 3, verse 3 of Isaiah 2. And it says this, and many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see what a new heart means? A new heart rather than one that says, I, I don't need God or, or I don't want God to tell me how I should live. And that No, that's, that's an evil heart. A new heart made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit is a heart that says, Oh, Lord, I need you. You are the only source of truth. You are the only source of life. I need you to teach me. I am absolutely dependent on you, not only for every breath I breathe, but for everything that is true, everything that is good, everything that is love, Everything that is peaceful, I am absolutely dependent on you for everything. And you see people of every nation, tribe, language, streaming to the throne of the Lord, crying out, we need you. The humility that comes to repentance and faith and belief. This is throughout the Psalms. Psalm 72, verse 11 says, May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Again, Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 72, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. And again, Psalm 86 that we started our service with, Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods. O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So you see through that faith and that belief, through that new heart, where there is faith, there is a new heart that desires the things of God. You see verse 10 again of Psalm 86. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Therefore, what what takes place in that new heart? Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. To hold you in holy, reverent Ah, for you are God and I am not. You are God. And you see, that's the difference of an evil, rebellious, unbelieving heart. Is a heart that cries out and says, God, you are God. I need your son, Jesus Christ. I need your Holy Spirit. I have nothing without you. With you, I have all that is good and right and true. Teach me, guide me, take me by the hand and lead me out of this darkness into the light of life. That's the, that's the cry of these people from every tribe, language, nation. I've seen it. I've been all around the world. I've seen people in, in northern northern. Nigeria, and I've seen people in northern Zimbabwe, and I've seen people in uh, the Palestinian area of Israel, and I've seen people in China. I've seen people all around the world. I've seen people of so many different tribes and languages and nations crying out to God in Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. He is our only hope, and He is our only comfort. So we see the work that God will raise up His mountain. He will raise up His house. Ultimately, He will raise up the true Israel, which is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the people of God. He is the one who came and was completely obedient. He never sinned. He obeyed the law perfectly. He obeyed God in all things. And he is high and lifted up. So we see not only will this coming king, this king of kings and lord of lords, who will save, but he also brings the end to all conflict, war, and strife. And that's what we see down in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Oh, what a glorious hope. What a glorious promise. You know, we talk about all these different ways of trying to keep peace or trying to find peace, or trying to establish peace, whether it is between nations or within a nation. 
Well, the Scriptures only has one remedy for conflict, division, and hostility. And now there, there's one remedy. Are you, are you ready for it? This is it. This is it. Salvation in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way the Scriptures know. Again, you want to have a church united? It's united in salvation in Jesus Christ. Remember, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one gospel. That's how unity is to be found. And here we see the coming judge, this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come and he will judge and he will bring justice and he will bring healing so that there are no longer weapons intended for death and destruction, but these weapons are turned to be tools for health and growth and benefiting others. There is an end of hostility in Jesus Christ. And this is what we long for. And this is what we look for. And ultimately we see Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We get to see a glimpse of it being fulfilled. That's exciting. You get to see a little glimpse of it. And it's Revelation 7. So here's your little glimpse. You want to get a little snapshot of what it's going to look like? You go to Revelation 7, starting at verse 9. Here's a little glimpse. Revelation 7, starting at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Oh, here it is. This is it. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Then you go to verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. Every tear. You see the same promise. You see the same promise in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, which is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2, where you see the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And in verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And as it continues, it says, 
And there'll be no more crying and no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every pain. Every struggle. There is peace. You will finally have full peace at the return of Jesus Christ. You can know it now. You can begin living into it now. You can now, as a believer on this heaven and earth, begin to see and grow and understand the peace that passes all understanding and and the joy that is beyond speech and 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 the truth and the comfort and the hope we we have those things now we live them but ultimately isaiah 2 isn't fully fulfilled until the new heaven and new earth the new jerusalem in that moment where god himself takes you comforts you and wipes every tear from your eyes. Peace. Peace. So we're very thankful that though the people of Israel during the time of Isaiah, they had fallen far short of being that. Are we not grateful that God would send His only begotten Son to be the Israel, to fulfill the law, and to lift up God's name higher and higher and higher so that He would receive all glory, all praise, and all honor. So that's the good news. It doesn't matter what pain, what suffering, what difficulty, what challenge you're facing. It doesn't matter what sin you've sinned or what sin you continue to be struggling and tripping and falling in. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. And in case you think that you are too bad to be saved, you're missing the whole point. That's the whole point of Isaiah chapter 1 and 2. We're all bad. And we're all too bad to be saved by our effort or works. That's the key. That's why God gets all the glory in our salvation. Because only God can save us. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. Oh, Lord, we are amazed when you speak such promises that you will lift up your holy house, that you will lift up your mountain, that the new Jerusalem will come down And that you will dwell with your people. 
Oh, Father, we thank you that, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the light and that, that your Son, Jesus Christ, spoke to us who would believe and he said to us that we are the light. Oh, Father, we pray that you will help us to shine your light so that more and more people would come to know and believe and be saved by your gospel. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go before to make people alive, convict people of sin, and enable them to see your love and your glory. Father, we thank you for your grace. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.